This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Pub after the day one meeting. That's sort of how we sort of talked about how this should go, that this should be like our faculty getting together after the first day of the meeting at the pub. We got our beers, wines, and actually it's like bottle water bottles and stuff like that. Uh, that's the best we can come up with on short notice. But we want to give you what we thought was uh, some of the highlights of the day. Uh, and let's start with the faculty. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Mike. I'm Mike Putman from Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. Trish. I'm Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland. Rachel. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida. And Eric. Hi, Eric Dion from New Jersey. Okay, so ground rules are there are no ground rules. Uh, we're going to sort of go around the horn and, you know, what what you, did you think was uh, uh, important? And so um, let's start with, who did I say I was going to start with? Uh, Eric. There you go. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit. I, I spent um, a bunch of time trying to find all the posters, which are all virtual this year. So um, I'm going to talk about a couple of posters today. The first is abstract 0344. Uh, and this is looking at hydroxychloroquine uh, blood levels and, and different predictors for, um, for measuring those. And so I, I think hydroxychloroquine blood levels can be really useful in clinical practice, but I don't always know what are the things that, that drive it up or down. And so this one did a really good job of uh, all sorts of data uh, that you can use as a reference. And one, one thing before I say that is it, it really does make a difference in clinical care. So if you go above 750 nanograms per, per milliliter um, or then above 1,000, each time you go up, you have a 75% decrease in flare risk according to their study. Uh, what are some of the, the things that affect it? If you're CKD stage two or above, you have 150 um, nanograms per milliliter uh, higher than if you're on the same dose of CKD one or less. Um, the, the increase from 200 of, uh, milligrams of, of hydroxychloroquine per day up to uh, 400 brings you up almost 500. Uh, and if you increase your body weight by 15 grams, it decreases um, the hydroxychloroquine levels by 82 uh, for each increase of, of 15 kilograms. So uh, using all of these things, uh, when we're seeing the patients, we're thinking about their body size, we're thinking about um, their kidney function, uh, but it's always hard to know exactly how much does that affect what their dose is. And as we're trying to get them for that optimal level, which I generally go from between 1,000 to 1,500. Uh, so I, I think this is very useful for clinical practice in, in helping have that in the back of your mind. What was the cohort? I mean, how, that was that they were analyzing. They how, they just analyzed people prospectively as far as their their levels. Yeah, so it was um, in a in a lupus center, uh, and they were checking blood levels on all the patients. Uh, and I'd have to take a look back to see if it, if it was prospective or if it was just a retrospective review of their data, okay. uh, but looking at the patient characteristics with the with the corresponding levels. I can remember almost 10 years ago, Michelle Petrie presenting this data at ULAR, I think it was in Spain, uh, and it seemed like just a, a little bit of a tool to tell whether patients were being compliant or not, and it's turned into a whole lot more than that, including oh efficacy, including antithrombotic effects and and whatnot. Any other uh, views on this? Do any of you do this in your practice? I, no, I have, oh yeah. no, go, Mike. 
I have strong views on this and I don't do it. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical because I think that a couple things can happen that I don't want. The first is that you go down on the hydroxychloroquine dose. And I really think that we're inappropriately reducing hydroxychloroquine doses for our patients with lupus. And then the second is that you have an uncomfortable, perhaps off-putting conversation with someone about how they're not adherent. And I'm in it for the long game. And any conversation that results in a patient not wanting to come back to see me, I think is a net negative. So I think it could be used well. I think it's probably effective, but I think there's some pitfalls here we need to be careful with. Yeah, Rachel, what do you think? I mean, I, I kind of agree with Mike, but I also think it opens it up for discussion for a patient, right? If you do have a patient who is not taking their drug, this is a way to kind of validate that in the sense of saying, look, I get it. Sometimes it's hard to stay on a medication um, for numerous reasons, but this is also why it's important. That's kind of the flip side of the coin, as Mike said. Yeah. Or even for them to open up as to why they're not taking the medication. And if you could do something about it, it might even just open up that conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Rachel. Well, we we need a, do need a way to deal with the horrendous problem of non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine, especially in lupus. And this is but one tool. And I think that Michelle would say um, you're more likely to go up on drug mm -hmm. dosing. And I think she sides with you, Mike, and that we tend to underdose because of all the eye concerns and whatnot, hydroxychloroquine. I think you tend to increase your dosing here uh, and not necessarily with the belief that it's all non-adherence. I just think that finding optimal dose, but it clearly needs to be studied better and used more widely until we really know. Eric, do you do it in your practice? I, I do it uh, often. I do it for pretty much all my patients on it. And I think it opens up a conversation uh, and, and I kind of work into the adherence talk. I say it's because of all these other things that I can mention here, your kidney disease, your, your body weight, and I want to make sure you're on the right dose. And then I come back and say, as a byproduct, while I was doing that, it also shows that your level was low and we need to have a conversation about how, how you're taking it. Yeah, the good um, news is think, it's, it's commercially available, I think, in a lot of places now. So, it, you know, we need a little more experience before we can really have a knockdown drag out about this, you know. So, Rachel, what's your next uh, big highlight for the day? Ah, uh, well, I told you I was going to do something different, but I changed my mind. There are a lot of good stuff today, actually. So I'm actually going to talk to you about um, abstract 374, which is a BASDI index during pregnancy, to make this short enough for everybody. This was a study group of 50 patients who had AS compared to um, age-related norm, normal patients of healthy pregnancies. At It's a small study, but what they did, they actually did BASDI on each of these patients um, in the first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester. And actually what they found is kind of interesting. So only morning stiffness actually classified patients who have AS with disease activity that was of any value in terms of the area under the curve during pregnancy. They found the back pain, fatigue, especially in the second half of pregnancy. And then of course the BASDI itself in the third trimester completely were insufficient for monitoring our AS patients. And why I think this is really interesting is because it opens up this conversation that we've been talking about for the past few years, which is, does the BASDI, you know, these validated measures that we have from the 1990s that were originally historically um, used in, in a, a Caucasian male population, do they actually affect change and do they actually tell us about disease activity in women? And I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting dynamic to actually look at it during pregnancy as well. 
when patients are having some of these symptoms, regardless of their disease. So our team um, really thought this was interesting in terms of the AS group, but I, I find that it's an area of unmet need. And that's why I'm, I'm classifying it as my highlight for today. So is this important because you're a bit of a spa geek? And I mean, and, and the rest of us don't really do baz dyes. What do you think? I mean, considering I'm talking to like my vasculitis and lupus cohort right here, I think there's been an unmet need, right? I mean, psoriatic arthritis is psoriatic disease, AS, spondylitis. We have a lot of changes that have been gone, going on within the past few years, non-radiographic versus radiographic. What do these mean? And I just think it's an area that we personally like to study and that we want to be um, more knowledgeable about. So I think it's an educational deficit. You know, the, I, I can't say I do the best. I have in clinical trials. Um, what I have always been encouraged by, and I don't know if any of you do this, but the recent years have shown that spondylitis patients actually can be well followed with a rapid three. Yes. Which is certainly a lot simpler um, and maybe as revealing. And But I do think, I do think it's important to do this in spondylitis patients, something, and maybe even more so when they're pregnant, because then you I mean, you have to deal with spa activity versus, you know, what pregnancy brings to bear on the patient. Um, I think following patients closely in a quantitative and qualitative way makes a, a, for better care. Anybody else have any views on this? I, I thought that was a great uh, poster that I, I did a video on that as well. Um, I, I think it's um, very useful because I, I think there's a lot of um, you know, disparity in, in recognizing glycine spondylitis in, in women to begin with. And I think especially studying it during pregnancy and regardless if you, if you use the BASDI or not, I think the components are, are very helpful. Um, I, I have pregnant patients that come to mind right now that have, you know, there's all the mechanical changes. You have back pain, you feel fatigued when you're pregnant and uh, really parsing out what are the questions within the BASDI to ask, I think is very useful for practice. Okay, great. Mike. What do you have? Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, an interesting study. This is abstract uh, 0352. Uh, that was published or, um, from uh, Dr. Petrie's group. She's got her second shout out for this uh, pub session. Uh, and this is an interesting study. And I want to share it because for one, it's something I wish we did more of. We're, I'm, we're seeing a lot of these now, but it's a, it's a conglomeration of prior trials in, lupus, in, in using Benlista, Belimumab, the Bliss inhibitor. Uh, it's called the effective balloon map on kidney outcomes and SLE results of a large integrated analysis. And so what they did is they said, you know, we have a lot of trials that looked at belimumab or Benlista, and they said, let's look at all that data together. We'll have more power. We might be able to find some new things that we hadn't seen before, and we'll be able to parse it into some more interesting uh, patient groups. So, you know, there's differences between these trials. Some of them had lupus nephritis, some of them did not. Uh, there are some other subtle differences between the patients that, that came into it. But at the end of the day, you can say, you know, we have this large group of people who got this drug and, and what happened to them. And the thing that I thought was most striking, you know, it's not terribly surprising that people who had lupus nephritis at baseline got better because we already have read the Bliss lupus nephritis trial that showed that there were some improvements in GFR. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was that they looked at the people who didn't have lupus nephritis at baseline and they looked into worsening. Um, on uh, biolag scores and um, using the kidney function. And what they saw is that from week zero, 
to week 52, uh, people who had normal um, uh, protein creatinine at baseline went up a little bit uh, if they're on standard therapy as opposed to uh, Benlista. And so to me, this suggests that uh, among people who uh, do not have lupus nephritis or lupus involvement at baseline, there may be some protective effect from belimumab. Now, the interesting thing is that had this been observational data, I would have said, well, of course, it's confounded by indication. Or, you know, this is just a subset of people who can are connected enough to get Benlista, but this is a randomized controlled trial. And so I think that it's a really interesting approach and kind of an interesting question. I thought it was a, it was a good abstract. So, Mike, you're a methodology guy and... Um, and uh, do you think this is the best case scenario as far as post hoc analyses go? And, you know, I, I think one of the strengths, but really one of the weaknesses, honestly, is that a good study happens like the best study or the maximized study, and it comes out and you, it's really great as it is, but the companies try to get more, uh, more bang for its buck out of the study and they just slice and dice it to the point that it can make almost any tune from that. And, it be the further away from the original trial and its design you get, the more meaningless the, the interpretation. So here you are, you know, taking multiple studies and putting them together and coming up with an outcome. Does this kind of analysis suffer from those faults or not? Uh, I mean, certainly, and I'll be the first to complain about it. I will also be the first to present two post hoc analyses on this little pub session that we're doing here. So I guess I'm uh, moderately hypocritical toward myself. I mean, I think the data is interesting and good in, in, in and of itself. I think that randomized data is better than observational data. Absolutely. If we have enough of it and if the patients are representative and if there's no shenanigans. And uh, anytime we can get a little more juice out of an RCT, I, I actually tend to like it. I think there's a risk in overinterpreting it. But man, the, the vitamin D study that we had, there have been a bunch of really interesting post hoc analyses that I think were really useful. And so uh, I'm, I'm pro additional analyses of randomized controlled trials, as long as you're not being too, too shady about it. Okay. I'm coming to you for shenanigans. <laughs> Patricia. Yeah, so I'm going to discuss uh, abstract 0478. Uh, so this was from Dr. Kirby and his colleagues. So they were looking for subclinical GCA in patients with PMR. Um, so it was quite a small study. They had 25 patients. And what they did was for all newly diagnosed PMR patients, they did a temporal artery ultrasound and an auxiliary artery ultrasound. And they found that 20% of patients, which was actually five patients, did have evidence of subclinical GCA. Um, and all five had evidence of GCA in their temporal arteries and one in their axillary artery. And I suppose the thing to note was that on their one year follow up, all five of them had actually developed clinical GCA. Um, so I suppose this abstract, obviously, you know, we need a bigger study, et cetera. But I, it made me think. So I have two questions and I'd actually be very interested on the panel's um, opinions on these. So should we be screening all PMR patients for GCA, even if they don't have symptoms or signs of it? And number two, if we do find that they have subclinical GCA, should we be treating them as GCA or should we be treating them as PMR? Wow. I think they were the two things that I got from it anyway. Um, I'll open it up to you guys before I give my opinion on it, maybe. I'm going to turn the show off at this point and leave everybody hanging with those two great questions. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I, I, I want to, uh, I think Mike's our vasculitis maven on this show. And um, Mike, what I learned is that uh, 50% of uh, GCA patients have PMR symptoms and that if you did uh, temporary biopsies on all PMRs, maybe 15% would be positive. So this number that uh, Trish comes up with here based on ultrasound, 20% is kind of close to that. Do you think mm -hmm. this is true? Yeah, I think- We're gonna get to questions in a second, <clears throat> but do you think that yeah. the numbers are in fact true? I, I am sure that there is subclinical GCA among patients with PMR and we've all found them. You know, a couple months later, it becomes clear. I am sure that we would have found some at baseline if we screened for it. And that gets to Trisha's questions, which are the are, are really are the best questions. Should we treat this? And in my opinion, is this gonna be over diagnosis? Because a lot of these people right now get 15 milligrams of steroid, they get tapered off and they do just fine. Putting them on 60 milligrams and some Actemra biologic and um, doing all this aggressive workup may be to the detriment to some group of these patients. We just don't know. It's a very good question. Yeah. All right. So the two questions again were, should we treat them? And the first one was Trish, what? So should we be screening all our PMR patients? Like if they don't have signs, if they don't have symptoms of GCA, should we be screening them? Yeah, I don't like going looking for trouble. I don't like trolling for p-values. I don't like, so um, no, I I think that you I'm 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 a lawyer. I need to know the answer to the question before I ask the question. Otherwise, it, you don't know what you're going to get, and you might get results that you like. Mike suggested you potentially could be over treating here. Um, I, in spite of the fact that I, I like Mike said, I I do see people who have evolved into GCA. It's not 20%. It's in, in my practice. But then again, I'm not, I'm not looking for it. So uh, if I was doing as Trish says, and I looked harder, would I convince myself? And then would I treat them? Uh, Eric and Rachel, what do you do? I mean, I'm pro ultrasound. So from an esoteric standpoint, I want to be looking further screening these patients. But I don't know that I treat a patient if it's not clinically active disease, period, across the board. So I I don't know that this changes the way I deal with this in clinic. Eric, what do you do? I, I educate them on the symptoms of GCA. I remind them every single time I, I see them and I, I harp on that. Um, I have a, a patient right now I'm treating with very refractory PMR that is very difficult to treat. Inflammatory markers are much higher than I would expect. And, and for that patient, I'm, I'm looking for GCA, but for the typical patient, um, I tell them the warning signs and we go over it and, and we go clinically. So Trish, what has what this study told you or taught you that you may do different going forward? I'm actually opposite to you guys. I'm like pay, playing the devil's advocate. But I suppose for me, like Rachel, like to do a temporal artery ultrasound or an auxiliary artery ultrasound in experienced hands takes five, 10 minutes tops. Um. And I do think like, I know this is a small study, but all five developed clinical GCA. So say if this is six months down the road, they're six months into their PMR therapy. And now suddenly we're going back to square one, we're treating them for GCA. Like, are we over-treating then or not over-treating, but like their cumulative steroid dose is going to increase. And God forbid they present with the complication of visual loss and we've known, but then that's back to I'm screening them to find it out. Um, but I definitely think the screening part, I think, you know, five, 10 minutes in clinic, um, we can easily do it. Okay. 
All right. So, so my quick hit is, kind of with me. <laughs> my uh, abstract is uh, abstract zero five three three. This is this is a spit study, uh, sputum antibodies against CCP in patients at risk for developing RA. So clinically uh, uh, suspect arthralgias, at risk individuals. This was a study of 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 patients who were um, at risk only by having CCP. They did not have have to have, I think, even any symptoms here. And um, so this comes from uh, Mike Holler's group in Denver, uh, where they've done, uh, and, and Kevin Dean, they do a lot of work on uh, preclinical RA and at-risk individuals. Um, Mike, a number of years ago, did this interesting study of, I think it was first-degree relatives who were CCP positive, and they did um, alveolar lavage on them, and they found not only autoantibodies in at-risk individuals, but they also found evidence of inflammatory airway disease based on, I guess, BAL fluid and, and whatnot, suggesting even though they were totally asymptomatic, that, that the preclinical state can also begin in the lung, not just um, serologically um, in, in the circulation. And so this is an extension of that study. And, uh, and, and it kind of goes to one of the theories or hypotheses that I think that that group is promoting that this preclinical RA is a mucosal um, uh, sort of driven process with microbiome changes and mucosal surfaces being the interface between um, uh, an inactive and then active immune system that um, leads to an autoimmune state that may progress. So the bottom line was that they found antibodies in in at-risk individuals, not to, and that that that's sort of what's interesting here. Does it change, you know, anything I'm doing? No. They correctly point out that the patients who are just CC positive, the odds are very much against them developing RA. Developing RA then becomes a cascade effect if you're a first-degree relative, if you have tenosynovitis, if you have high titer CCP, if you have double positivity, if you're a smoker, and now if you have sputum spit antibodies, you know, uh, you're, you're, you, the clinician, gets to worry a little bit more. So I like the story that's being built. It kind of sequentially adds on. Um, I still think we can now argue about some of the preclinical intervention trials at this meeting. Um, stop RA, a negative study with hydroxychloroquine, or the ARIA study, a positive study with abatacept, but that's another pub discussion. So in our last lightning round, we're going to go around once around the horn, and I'm going to get quickies from everyone because this is going on too long, and we have to get our second round of, of beers here at the pub. So again, Eric, give us your quickie. Yes, so uh, very quick, uh, SPA-U not a university, it's uh, a study looking at uh, spondyloarthritis and uveitis. Uh, what are the, they put together a calculator for, can you predict severity for the uveitis in this patient population? So things that are more severe, smoking, axial and peripheral involvement, uh, a high BASDI, HLA-B27 positivity, female sex, elevated CRP, and a history of bilateral ocular involvement. Um, we can get to um, Mike's thoughts tomorrow on, on they also included low vitamin D there as well. Cool. Rachel. So very quickly, abstract 89, which was looking at psoriatic arthritis trials and then expanded, but it showed that black study subjects remain underrepresented in rheumatology clinical trials with one exception, 
and gout trials. So my urge to you guys is let's do better at patient recruitment and also maybe we can better define disease states as it relates to other populations. Interesting. Mike. Mm -hmm. I will very briefly parse another trial. So this was the uh, abstract 0526 from the PEXAVAS trial, which was a factorial randomized trial of either steroids a little bit or a lot or plasma exchange, yes or no. And uh, the interpretation of the PEXAVAS trial was that it was a negative trial. You should do low-dose steroids and plasma exchange doesn't necessarily have a role in ankyovasculitis. Now, the flip side is that if you read that trial, you'll notice that not that many people in the trial had diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, 27% um, overall, and only a fraction of that was severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. We have been clamoring for that data and now we have it. And the interpretation in today's abstract was that there was no significant difference. And they're correct. The hazard ratio was something like 0.45, but it crossed 1.14 to 1.40. And so they said there's no significant benefit. But man, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, there is a wide divergence between, divergence between those curves. And it really looks like the people who had severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage benefited from plasma exchange. The hazard ratio confidence intervals crossed one, but man, that hazard ratio is 0.4 something. I want that for my patients with severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, and I am coming off the anti-plex bandwagon, and I am bringing it back. And to be fair, I never really let, let it go, because I've always been suspicious that we didn't know enough about that cohort. Uh, the the PEXIVA study was a fairly large study, wasn't it? Like 200 or something like that? 704. Ooh, wow. Yeah. So I can't, can't blame sample size on, on um, significance there, but... I think any rheumatologist with a conscience who's dealing with vasculitis and alveolar hemorrhage is dialing up that, that plasma exchange because bad outcomes there, right? So, I all mean, right. Any rheumatologist with a, a laser pointer, you can fit it between those Kaplan-Meier curves so you know that there could be a benefit there. <laughs> there you go. All right, Trish, you're going to cap the show. Yeah, so very, very briefly, abstract 0447. So they were looking at the use of beta blockers in reducing the risk of aortic dilatation in patients with GCA-related large vessel vasculitis. So it was basically a retrospective study. Um, they had 65 consecutive patients. Uh, 15 of those, so 23%, were on beta blockers, and the remaining 50 patients weren't. So what they did was they compared the patient's first imaging with their last imaging and looked for any evidence of new aortic dilatation. And what they found was 15 patients, so 23%, had evidence of new aortic dilatation. But the key thing was none of those patients were on beta blockers. So in other words, everyone who was on beta blockers in that study population didn't develop new aortic dilatation. And they'd also done vascular scores in these patients before. And it wasn't that the vascular score was higher in the patients that did develop aortic dilatation. So even though it's retrospective and it's small, I do think it's given us a little bit of food for thought. Maybe the addition of a beta blocker in addition to our conventional management to reduce the risk of aortic dilatation. So do we think that this effect is all driven by antihypertensive benefits? It's very hard. Yeah. Like I think it's, I suppose it just gives us food for thought, but absolutely it'll need to be studied 
prospectively larger numbers, etc. But I just thought it was quite an interesting study. And I know it's something that we all worry about. And I suppose we're not too clear on how best to attenuate the complications of large vessel GCA. So uh, for that reason, it caught my attention. I'm still I'm wondering about this. Did they go into the study knowing that there's a question of whether or not to use beta blockers or did in doing the study and looking at who developed dilation of the aortic root, did they then see this divergence of whether you use, so did they find it sort of retrospectively by accident or did they go in looking to analyze, uh, find this, uh, answer this question? Yeah, I'm actually not too sure enough, but I would say it was retrospectively found mm. would be my yeah. <laughs> um, interpretation of it. Um, but yeah. I still thought it was quite interesting, though. Very, very much so. All right. This is very informative. Great first day recap by a great faculty. I want to ask everybody, are you, um, what do you think of today? Was it uh, a great meeting? Uh, give me your score of the meeting, um, zero to 10. Zero is the worst meeting ever. 10 is the best. best. Again, we're all back and, and loving seeing each other. Lots of, of smiles and hugs. But how was your first day, Eric? Zero to 10. I'll go with the seven. It was, it's great to be back. It, it, I, I miss the poster halls. I think it'd be great to actually see the posters and it's a little hard to rely on the internet. That's a little spotty sometimes, but seeing everyone definitely brings it way up. Rachel? I would have gone six, uh, solid being back, but that internet is driving me nuts. Yeah. Patricia? You're, you're doing virtual. What do you think? Yeah, so virtually brings me down to six. Yeah, I've, I, I'm i so jealous of everyone who's over there. The virtual platform is great, but yeah, it doesn't replace being there. So ACR 23, I'll definitely be there. I want you to know Mike Putnam was all over the convention center today. So he will know the final number, the final answer. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to give it a seven so we can split the difference. The nice 6.5 average, we're all correct. Um, I think it's a 10 for seeing colleagues and uh, being in person again. It's just a joy. Uh, it's like a four uh, as far as the tech stuff, the community hubs. I want to see people in person. It's kind of weird signing on to things. So I think that there's some tweaks they can do next year to make it better. Um, four and 10 also averages out to seven. So I nailed you know, it. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of little things that were disappointing, but we haven't been together in a long time. And I don't know if you've traveled recently. The airlines are not getting a seven or a six, you know, um, they're struggling too. So return to normal is going to be a little bit of a slow path for all of us, but we're enjoying it. Thanks very much for your time tonight. Bye-bye. Thanks guys. Bye-bye. Hello from Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate, and today I have the pleasure of finally getting to interview one of my friends, Dr. Fabian Proft, regarding his work, not only through Grappa, but what he's presenting this year at ACR 2022. Fabian, thank you so much for doing this with us today. It's been a long time coming for us, hasn't it? Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, and I think it's great that we finally make it. Absolutely. Not just Twitter anymore, right? Absolutely. We're friends in real life. So, you really presented a great abstract this morning, which was 0383. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about neural networks. Yes, absolutely. And I think the main important highlight that I want to give is we know that we have artificial intelligence. We have it in our daily life. If we are using Google Maps, if you're driving in our car, and it is also implemented in many other medical specialities like in radiology, um, oncology. But now we also need or should 
implemented in rheumatology. And what we were um, presenting today was that we were testing our artificial neural network that has been previously trained and validated in our own cohort and in a training cohort. And now we collaborated with a pharmaceutical company, UCB. And we externally checked our algorithm with the rapid expa study data, and which is um, also particularly important that in rapid expa patient with radiographic access bar, but also with non-radiographic access bar, were included. And uh, the images, based on which they were then allocated to one or the other arm of the study, were read by central readers, three uh, different external experts, and all of them have not been previously involved in the um, training of our algorithm. So we externally checked how is it participating or uh, yeah, working with external experts, and also how can it differentiate between radiographic and non-radiographic access bar in a cohort for multi-center, multinational patients. Wow. It's amazing. So do you think this is the future? Based on our data, I think it can be the future because we have a um, really excellent agreement with the three external experts. And when we are all thinking about how it is currently done in uh, multi-center studies, you are making the x-ray at your center, yeah. then you send it to a vendor maybe sitting in San Francisco, right. then he or she is sending it back to another expert center around the globe Again, takes a little bit of time until the image is read, yes. going back to the vendor, and until I receive the result, easily five to ten days can go and land. And now with the artificial intelligence, it could be you just upload the image, and yeah. you, after two seconds you have the um, result, which is close to expert level, and it's really reliable, because if you feed one image to the algorithm, a thousand times, you will a thousand times get the same result out of it. Out of it. So I think that's really interesting, and you bring up something that's really important too. There was um, you have data on both non-radiographic and radiographic XBA. I know there's a lot of discussion regarding these two disease states. Are they one? Are they different? So having AI support for that, especially in terms of a neural network, it makes sense. I mean, it gives us a little more um, depth of what we do, right? It allows us to have a little bit more of a say and. Hopefully, I absolutely confidence. Agree. Confidence, <laughs> absolutely agree. And I think the important point is that we only fed images of patients with the final diagnosis of actual spa yes. into the algorithm, and then we get help with the classification. Is this still non-radiographic, or is it already progressed to radiographic actual spa? So is there, do you see this being implemented anytime soon? Or I know there are clearly hurdles, right? Tech always has hurdles, but... It's interesting. I, honestly speaking, the collaboration with the pharmaceutical company UCB was so fruitful, and I think really in upcoming multi-center, multinational RCTs involving both non-radiographic and radiographic spa, I think it should be implemented. That is awesome. I always love it when you can give me a real definitive. Like <laughs> that's what I get from you on Twitter. I expect nothing less in life. So, um, your work with Grappa. Very, very, very quickly, I just want to highlight that because it's something that I really respect you for and something you're very passionate about. Is there any anything new on the horizon from the young Grappians? Thank you so much. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is really important because I currently have the honor to lead the Young Grappa Initiative, yeah. and it's so so great to have all the enthusiastic people from around the globe collaborating, and which is so important about Grappa is that we are having dermatologists and rheumatologists yes. and so we really have interdisciplinary um, collaborations going on but what we are missing a little bit 
is a high representation of dermatologists in our young rapper community. So really? I think this is a close call out to the community. If you have a dermatologist that is interested in psoriatic disease, come and join Young Grappa. We're looking for more germs. We need the collaboration anyway. So. Absolutely. Colla collaboration is key. It is. It absolutely is. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your passion, your dedication, your art with me, as well as the science, of course. And as always, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and follow Dr. Proft at... At Dr. Proft. Hi, my name is Akhil Sood, reporting from now at ACR 22. Today I want to talk about Abstract 383, which looks at artificial intelligence and the, the diagnosis of radiographic sacroiliitis in patients with AXPA. Sacroiliitis on x-rays is one of the most important clinical features to diagnose AXPA. We use the modified New York criteria to diagnose sacroiliitis. This method has been the standard both for clinical practice and clinical trials. However, there has been discrepancy between central readers and local readers, and this leads to the question, is there a way to streamline the process of diagnosing sacroiliitis in patients with AXPA? And Abstract 383 aims to address that. They evaluate the performance of a previously developed artificial intelligence algorithm and applied it to a new cohort of patients with AXPA. The performance was compared to expert central readers. And the results were quite impressive. The sensitivity of diagnosing sacroiliitis on imaging was 82%. The specificity was 81% and the agreement between the readers and the algorithm was 82%. So this leads to the question, are computers ready to replace humans? The answer is not quite yet. There's still a lot of work in refining the algorithm and applying it to a larger population. And while the applications of AI are far reaching, it is far from replacing humans. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR 22 from Philadelphia. There have been some interesting presentations looking at the aspect of gender differences in axial spondyloarthritis here at ACR 22, in particular, how patients may respond to treatment. And here today, I'd like to highlight uh, two which I think are key abstracts looking into this topic. Firstly, abstract 1497, which is a study done in Germany from the Aquila database, where they had 3,000 patients recruited, and these patients were patients with axial spondyloarthritis treated with sacokinumab. We know from previous data that early treatment and early diagnosis improves long-term clinical outcome. And here they looked at the patient population from this database and found that in patients who had a delay to diagnosis, as in they were diagnosed more than a year from the onset of symptoms, there were gender differences. In females who were diagnosed later, uh, in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, they had a higher body mass index compared to males. They also found that in females who were diagnosed later for more than a year or more with ankylosing spondylitis had reduced treatment effect when they were treated. Although all the, the majority of these patients responded to treatment, it appeared that in females, the treatment response 
was less compared to males. Both males and females in the study also had a very high ASAS health index, and the longer the delay to diagnosis, the higher the ASAS health index, or the worst functional score. The same was not found in psoriatic arthritis. There was no difference in response to treatment uh, in patients who had later diagnosis compared to the ankylosing spondylitis group. So I think this tells us that there are gender differences uh, which are important for us to consider uh, when we are making the diagnosis uh, and treating our patients with arthritis. The second important abstract, I think, which also highlights this topic on gender differences in the area of arthritis, is from 1614. This is a study uh, done using the PROOF database. This is a PROOF is a study, which is a five-year study of recently diagnosed patients with arthritis, both non-radiographic and also the radiographic XPAR. There were 2,633 patients recruited into the study, and when they've gone back to look and to see whether there were differences in terms of gender, they did find that in the non-radiographic arm, these are patients who have MRI changes, but not X-ray changes. There were differences in terms of male and females and how they respond to, to TNF treatment. The response was better in males compared to females uh, in patients in the non-radiographic arm. In the radiographic arm, or what we know of as ankylosing spondylitis, there seemed to be no difference in terms of the treatment response to TNF inhibitor. So this tells us that uh, there are also gender differences in terms of not just the whole arthritis, but also within the non-radiographic as opposed to the radiographic components. When they adjusted for TNF-alpha use, there seemed to be, this was not seemed to be related to TNF-alpha use. So these gender differences are appearing to be not TNF dependent and the research needs to be done uh, in the future to look at what mechanisms might be driving these gender differences in terms of the patient outcomes. And I think this will, again will be another area that we look forward to further reports and publications uh, in the years to come. I'm Anthony Chan, I'm reporting for Room Now here in Philadelphia at ACR 22. Hi, good morning. Uh, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting live for Room Now from ACR 22. And today I wanted to share uh, uh, interesting abstracts on uh, very hot topics in the world of gut microbiome again in uh, spondyloarthritis. And this is abstract 0868. And you know, the really it focused on can we alter uh, the neonatal gut microbiome to you know, pot potentially prevent spondyloarthritis, or at least how is how does that affect the development of spondyloarthritis? We know there's been a growing body of literature suggesting that alterations in intestinal flora can affect the pathogenesis of spondyloarthritis. And as we know, the most critical time in gut flora formation is the neonatal formation where it transforms from really this kind of sterile environment to a dense and diverse colonization. So this is uh, where this was a retrospective study 
uh, examining perinatal factors known to affect neonatal gut microbiome, including the mode of delivery, the choice of early diet, antibiotic exposure, and maternal smoking. Overall, 59 patients were studied, and they found that patients with antibiotic exposure were actually 6.2 times more likely to develop spondyloarthritis, and this association further increased with a greater number of antibiotic courses. Ironically, they found the other factors did not affect spondyloarthritis development at all. Uh, this included a mode of delivery, things like vaginal versus C-section, early diet, which I thought was very interesting, including breast milk, formula, or TPN, and even smoking, maternal, maternal smoking did not show a difference. I think this is very interesting data, obviously. Um, you know, looking back on it, we know this is a small study and it is retrospective. And I think to us, it makes sense. I think we all, all of us understand that antibiotic use can alter and change the gut microbiome. Um, and I think for us uh, as clinicians, you know, one of the most important things or the questions I always receive uh, from patients about gut microbiome, I think is, is because I feel like inherently to us as, as people, we feel like the gut microbiome is something we can control. And I think to patients, that's very important. Besides them coming in every few months, getting our blood work that we recommend, our medicines that we prescribe, patients want to have a sense of uh, their own control over their disease. And I think gut microbiome and diet is, is one of those um, areas. But now looking at this data, you know, is this something that we can control? Because when we get sick. And if we get sick, do we not take antibiotics then because of this study? Um, obviously, I don't think that's the right choice. Um, I think there's a few things to consider. Maybe in the future, if a pregnant patient is sick, um, should we be more judicious with antibiotic use? You know, maybe don't give everyone who has a, a sneeze and a cough and a typical upper respiratory infection a Z-pack. Um, Maybe there should be a role for probiotics when prescribing antibiotics to uh, pregnant patients. I think these are all interesting questions. And this, this study was definitely very interesting in shedding some new light on the world of gut microbiome and uh, spondyloarthritis. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, for continued coverage of ACR22, please tune into Room Now and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thank you. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist in the London, United Kingdom, and I'm reporting here for Room Now at ACR22 in Philadelphia. In the area of arthritis, there are many comorbidities as well as extra-articular manifestations that may go along with the condition. This can have an impact on the quality of life as well as long-term outcomes in our patients. And there is an interesting abstract, number 1609, which looks at comorbidities in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, because this is important in terms of understanding the disease activity and also the functional impairment. This is data from the SOAS cohort, where they had patients with ankylosing spondylitis and also documented comorbidities and extra articular manifestations. 
what they did was to link the comorbidities. So many of these comorbidities are linked between one to the other. And from this linkage study, you, they were able to develop some clusters of comorbidities. The patients were uh, reviewed at baseline and then followed up every two years in this cohort. Uh, in average, there was a 2.9-year follow-up uh, of over 1,270 ankylosing spondylitis patients. The results from this uh, study showed that depression was the highest comorbidity at 33% followed by hypertension at 28%. In terms of extra articular or extra musculoskeletal manifestations, uveitis was highest at 34% in the ankylosing spondylitis group. When they pulled the data together, they were able to develop five clusters, and the clusters were the depression cluster, no comorbidities, hypertension, uveitis, and miscellaneous comorbidities. In the patients group with uh, no comorbidities in this cluster, these tended to be patients who were younger and also shorter disease duration. And the percentage of female patients here were 20%. In the depression cluster, on the other hand, the, these patients had more comorbidities, worse disease activity, and also poorer functional status. So this is quite important in terms of how we manage our patients in terms of knowing the, the impact of the comorbidities and also the extra-articular manifestations on the presentation and also management of our patients with ankylosing spondylitis. So to conclude, this study shows that depression or the depression cluster uh, predicted the worst uh, outcome in terms of disease activity. They had high disease activity and also they had reduced functional status. So I think this is again an important study uh, how and how we manage our patients that we will not be only be treating their, their objective clinical signs that we see, but also managing their comorbidities and to ensure that we get the best outcome for our patients. I'm Anthony Chan, uh, reporting here at ACR22 in Philadelphia. You can follow me on Twitter at Sinoville Joints. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming from Philadelphia at ACR 2022 and I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing my new friend, Dr. Sinead McGuire. Um, Sinead, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, this thank you awesome. for inviting me. No, oh my gosh, I've been so excited to interview you since 2020 when we first met you oh, with Dr. Thanks. Conway. <laughs> so my question to you is you have this amazing abstract. 406. Thank Can you. you tell us a little bit about it and what inspired you? Sure, of course. So I've been really interested in patient outcomes in women specifically with axial spondyloarthritis. Um, so we know that the kind of epidemiology of ankylosing spondylitis and AXPA has changed as we've learned more about it over the past um, couple of decades. And so I've been trying to focus more on women with the disease to understand how they differ from men. And so what we did with this study is we used data from the Ankylosing Spondylitis Registry of Ireland, or the ASRI, um, and we did a correlation analysis um, essentially between BASDI, which is one of our really commonly used disease activity indices, and also the ASQOL, so looking at quality of life outcomes. And essentially we found that women, the correlation between these two indices is weaker in women than in men. So this is telling us that maybe the BASDI isn't reflecting the true impacts of quality of life in women with AXPA, and kind of raises the question, you know, maybe are there some like more minute changes within the BASDI that are having a greater impact on women in terms of their quality of life outcomes. Um, and, you know, it opens 
opens the door to a lot of interesting studies down the line, like do we need to change the cutoff indices for what disease activity is in bad yes. side for women with AXPA, or you know, maybe do we need to consider developing a new tool to try and capture the impacts of their disease a little bit better. So um, that's what we were looking at, and so I think this study is kind of like opening the door to future studies. Um, you know, it's relatively um, simple in its analysis, but um, I think it does raise some really interesting questions. Well, and you're not the only one to talk about this as a, you know, disease state measures and do they actually capture disease activity for AS, particularly in women, from pregnancy and non-pregnancy standpoints too. So you mentioned something interesting to me, which is this sets the stage for future development and for future hopefully clinical trials for us. Absolutely. I know you're not in Ireland anymore. We've gotten you over to this hemisphere. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the future. You are working with ASRI. Tell me about any registries this year. Yeah, so I have been doing a lot of work with ASRI the past few years and specifically looking at women and looking at pregnancy outcomes, which was really exciting. Um, we actually published a paper last year on pregnancy outcomes from the ASRI, but I'm planning on building on that going forward using data um, from the uh, OHIP, which is the Canadian uh, Insurance Registry in uh, Canada. And so what we're doing, what we're planning to do is a much bigger study essentially looking at pregnancy outcomes um, in women with AS. So we're hoping that that will, um, again, draw a little bit more attention to this, um, also help inform our management of these women as they go through their pregnancies. Because the problem with pregnancy information in women with rheumatic disease is that a lot of it is really on rheumatoid arthritis and it's on uh, lupus. And our poor women with SPA, they want to know what to expect or what to look out for. Um, so that's why we're doing these studies, um, you know, to try and answer those questions, draw a bit more attention, and also set the stage for future studies. I think you said that beautifully. Clearly pregnancy is an area that I am really interested in too, as are you, um, not only in our spondy patients, but across the board, right? We need more information. And interestingly, you mentioned this earlier, but um, the BASDI was originally developed in the early 90s and it doesn't capture potentially all of our patients. So this is a real area of unmet need. I'm so happy you could join us today. I'm so excited for your future. I can't wait to share it with you. Thank Do you so much. Of course. Um, and we look forward to having you back again with us. But for any other um, comments or discussions, check us out on roomnow.com. And of course, as always, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and follow Dr. McGuire at, uh, at SineadM15. Thank you very much. Thank you.